Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager, and we have both been sick mm-hmm. for like two weeks now, off and on. You and I have been alternating sicknesses. Yeah, yeah. I, I, at least two different illnesses have uh, have managed to wander their way through my household. Um, my son is on his second uh, illness this week, getting over something with a fever and a scratchy throat. I had it uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it even took it with me to Disney World, uh, or right before entering Disney World, Disney World. I didn't actually enter the park uh, with with the illness. And you went to Disney World the same time I went to Seattle, mm-hmm. and I caught. I don't know if I got it from you or Jonathan Strickland, our uh, colleague, had laryngitis last ah. week, and he sits across from me. But uh, sure enough, the day I got on the plane, I came down with something. And I, I had a horrible fever by the time I got to Seattle for my vacation and was just shivering. And luckily I had three days. I, I ended up getting better before I attended Emerald City Comic Con last week. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I would have been patient zero at Emerald City and infected everybody. Uh, the, the, the nomenclature that's usually used at big conventions like that is concrud. Oh yes. Cause you're just bound to pick something up with that many people breathing on each other and touching each other. Uh, I know people who just have like hand sanitizer in their pockets at all time and are just constantly <laughs> like rubbing their hands with it in their face. But you know what? Like you're going to just get it no matter what. Well, it's you're you're combining several different things here. You, you have the, the convention where, like you say, a lot of people, tight space, yeah. um, you know, sometimes physical interaction. And then on top of that, if you are flying there, oh, yeah. then you're in the, you're on that in the airplane environment. So you're in this this sealed tube with all of these coughing, hacking, yeah. <laughs> breathing people. And it's just going to illnesses are going to be passed around like. I think I look back on the times when when I've gotten sick with something you know notable, and I usually don't don't get that sick, but it's it generally follows international travel, um, or at least like a long uh, journey by plane. This is no joke. Every single year, I get sick one time, like like a major way, and mm-hmm. it's always when I go on a vacation. Mm-hmm. Always, it always happens. Last year, I went to Portland got sick the minute I got there and it's, it's either airplanes or maybe it's like I'm relaxing and I'm letting my immune system drop or something. But I'll say this, what you were just talking about with the coughing, has anybody ever been on an airplane where somebody isn't hacking? (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, there's always going to be someone hacking. There's always going to be that crying child. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just part of traveling. But so we're circling around this, but our topic for today is actually the idea of a patient zero, of the first patient, the first victim bringing a disease to the human populace. Yeah, or if, if not to the human populace as a whole, then at least to a center of population. Yeah. Um, these are also known as index cases. That's really the, the more official title. Uh, the patient zero is the, the sexier sort of media, uh, word for, for this type of individual. And it's and, really misleading. Yes. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a misnomer and it's misleading. We're going to talk about why. Yeah. And, and in order to discuss why, I think it's important that we, we also isolate some of the mythic and fictional variations of this trope. Sure. 
because we're talking about the idea here that some illness or some flaw in character, and these two are often intermingled in myth, can be traced back to a single individual. And then how right. are we supposed to feel about that single individual? Right. And being humans and doing what we do, we usually uh, look upon them with disdain and, and, and write a narrative in which they are somehow the bad guy right. uh, for getting us all sick. And, we, you know, we've talked about mythology on this podcast a lot in the past and about how how powerful these uh, these mythological ideas are, even if we're not consciously invoking them. So I thought it might be a good idea to just look at some of these mythic examples and uh, and see how they are reflected in our modern view of the patient zero. OK, so let's start, let's start with uh, what we can think of as, uh, you know, like original sinners or OG sinners. Uh, <laughs> one of the most famous is, of course, Pandora. Pandora is the first woman created by the gods. She opens a jar or a box, depending on uh, on, on, on your reading. And uh, in doing this, she unleashes all the uh, sort of nonspecific evils of the world. So thanks a lot, Pandora. Now we have evil in the world. Yeah, and... Uh, it's very easy to see that as a gendered narrative. Oh, right? certainly. Uh, uh, our, our friends who used to do stuff mom never told you probably have an episode on a Pandora somewhere about the, the myth of that it's all Pandora's fault or it's all Eve's fault, right? Yeah. Eve yeah. is the other big one, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, Eve, the, uh, the first woman and, uh, in, in, you know, as, as encountered in the Old Testament, uh, she makes the mistake of listening to a talking snake. It was, of course, Satan who convinces her to disobey the creator God and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm. And this transgression only leads to their expulsion from the earthly paradise, our mortal legacy of having to work and wear clothes and experience painful childbirth. So, right. again, a very gendered blame game going on here. This one uh, primordial woman made a mistake, uh, erred in judgment, listened to a talking snake, which is really a bit unfair, right? Because uh, I've always looked back on that story and it's like, why why is there a talking snake? You really threw a curveball here while having a talking snake. I think, didn't all animals talk? I don't know my Bible that well. Joe should be here, but but I'm pretty sure that in the Garden of Eden, all animals talked, but maybe here's what I've always I don't remember that, but but maybe that's from the Disney version. Well, that's where I was going was I was thinking like, is the talking snake the same snake from, uh, from from the Jungle Book, oh, or is um, it like an ancient relative? Ka, yeah, yeah Ka, exactly. Oh, yeah. Maybe Man so. Cub. <laughs> uh, but, but certainly, yeah, Pandora, Eve. These are both examples of of uh, of of, of, a, of a essentially a patient zero for human suffering. Yeah. Another big one from uh, from from the Old Testament is, of course, Cain. Uh, he's mm-hmm. the the firstborn son, and his crime is a bit more complicated because you get into this issue of. Uh, his sacrifice versus Abel's sacrifice, Abel being his brother. But however you want to <laughs> attribute it, he's remembered as being the first murderer of his brother, Abel. So God punished Cain uh, to a life of wandering and set a mark on him so that no man would kill him. Yeah, that that is actually a a, a bit of mythos that is popping up in a lot of popular culture fiction lately, the, the mm-hmm. mark of Cain and the idea of bearing that 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 mark of the first murderer it's a little different than disease but uh i think that in kane's case it's, it's definitely one of those like this is why humanity is so burdened right yeah and all three of these are examples too where the idea that the stain never washes away right, right. humans are always going to be stained with original sin and or uh, females are always going to have some degree of blame, right? Or in the case of Cain, it, it's carried on through, uh, through Cain's children. Yeah. Uh, 
it indeed like an, as if it's an infectious agent. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we also have plenty of examples of uh, monster patriarchs and matriarchs. We have Echidna, the Greek uh, from Greek myth. So this is the maid of the giant uh, Typhon, and she gave birth to such monsters as Cerebus, the Hydra, the Chimera, the Sphinx, the Gorgon, uh, uh, Cilia, etc. I, I uh, have just been reading Chuck Wendig's book, Zeros, mm-hmm. and it's um, not at all about mythology, but it is about cyber culture and artificial intelligence. And they heavily play off of the uh, Echidna Typhon uh, mythology within the sort of classifications of AI. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, there's also Lilith, the first uh, wife of Adam, according to Jewish mythology. And you see later treatments, especially in, in fiction and vampire fiction, mm-hmm. uh, where Lilith is is held up as this demon or the first vampire. And uh, to, to to draw in a, a less mythic and certainly more pop cultural example, I'm a, I was always a big fan of Blade Two. Uh, Blade Two is a fantastic Guillermo movie. del Toro movie, yeah. and that has a wonderful Patient Zero plot in it. Yes, it does. Yeah, the whole plot line here is there's a Patient Zero for a new strain of uh, vampirism, right. one that turns the vamps into reapers who feed on the the blood of vampires. And so you have this character, Jared Nomack, who's the uh, the sort of tragic supervillain of the of the film. Yeah, and it, that's an interesting take on it because, like, you, you can look at vampirism mythology in general as being about disease, right? Mm-hmm. But then this sort of flips it on its head. It's a disease for the disease carriers, and a situation where the disease changes. There's right. so, something is is tweaked in the, the illness, and suddenly it becomes all the more dangerous. And that kind of mutation is is actually very real and part of what we're going to talk about today with these ideas of patient zeros in major uh, epidemic breakouts. Yeah. Now, what are a few more here? Well, we've recently been talking about The Expanse. Ah, yeah. And there's the character uh, Juliet Mao on that show who's infected with the proto-molecule, and that becomes a major plot point in the first book and the first couple of seasons of the show. Yeah. In Stephen King's The Stand, uh, some, some of uh, some of you King fans out there might remember that there's a uh, there's a one individual, Charles uh, Campion, I believe. Is he the security guard who like ends up like leaving the base when he's not supposed to? Yeah, I believe like so. Yeah. He becomes uh, a uh, he becomes the the patient zero for uh, Captain Trips yeah. super flu. The stand the stand is truly like the epidemic story of our time. I I anytime I get a really bad flu, I refer to it as Captain Trips. <laughs> Yeah, and there's this movie that came out maybe two or three years ago that I thought of. It's called Contracted. They've made a sequel to it as well. It's a zombie movie technically, but it's about, uh, the whole thing is about a woman who contracts, uh, zombieism, I guess, mm-hmm. at, th- as a sexually transmitted disease from a patient zero. And it's a slow, uh, burn of her basically like going through the initial stages of the disease, the movie ending with her turning into a zombie. Uh, but apparently contracted two, which I have not seen is about finding the patient zero. Ah, now this is kind of a familiar trope uh, to some of these uh, films such as uh, the ring. Yeah. And uh, potentially even uh, it follows like I've understand, I've I've, I've understood that if they do a follow up film, that's going to be what it deals with is kind of finding the agent. I mean, the patient zero. There is, yeah, there is sort of an element of that in the, in the original, it follows Mm -hmm. if they ever come out with a sequel that, I'm kind of hoping. I, yeah, I kind of hope they leave it yeah. where it is. But, but yeah, the idea that they need to find out whoever the first person is who's contracted this curse. Yeah. Because that's our human tendency, right? Yeah. We want to find out where did it begin? Uh, wh- who can we blame? 
Um, and it's, uh, it becomes this complicated game that is both, both, that, that has certainly elements of, of, uh, of important science to it, uh, and, uh, in, in terms of containing and figuring out how the illness works, but also draws in all of these, um, less scientific mythic ideas. So let's unravel this a little bit. What, what is exactly a patient zero or an index case? So, as we've uh, been discussing it, we're essentially talking about the first known patient to exhibit symptoms of a given illness. Uh, and yeah, it's one that plays out into uh, so many of our dramas about infectious disease. Some of the examples we didn't touch on that uh, have been mentioned in some of our sources are uh, Contagion that came out in 2011, 12 Monkeys, 95, and 28 Days Later came out in, 20, uh, in 2002. And uh, Outbreak was in a lot of my notes. Oh, too. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but as Robert mentioned earlier, scientists prefer the term index case. The reason why is identifying a single person as the patient zero both gives an incorrect impression about how a disease might emerge, and it insinuates that somebody should be blamed for the outbreak, right? Um, at the same time, it's important to find out what's going on with these cases, because then if you know their history, you can help researchers determine how and when the outbreak started. So some refer to this as detective work or I actually saw it referred to as shoe leather epidemiology in, in one of the articles. Uh, so basically, the idea here is you backtrack the disease. And once patient zero is identified, you try to figure out how they got sick. So were they in contact with a certain species of animal? Animal, or what kind of activities did they do right before they got sick or how exposed were they? Like, did they have open wounds or did they breathe something in? Did they ingest something or was it just something in the air? So what today's research is really going to ask us to consider is that this is a state of harnessing scientific authority to enact coercive measures while drawing upon contemporary beliefs that either race or class or sexuality could lend to this patient zero's propensity for disease. Uh, because when patient zero is defined as someone with distinguishing traits, whether that's behavior or sexuality or race, it makes it easier for those of us with different characteristics to reassure ourselves that we're not at risk. This doesn't have to do with us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and they typically locate disease origins uh, as being in, quote, pre-modern parts of the world. So there's a concern that this narrative deflects attention away from the structural factors that can affect transmission and health health outcomes. Um, So, yeah, I mean, and it's it's also incredibly difficult to nail down a patient zero. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's one of these ideas that certainly works better in fiction than it does in reality. Yeah, absolutely. It seems uh, it, right. Like uh, 28 days later, it's really easy to say like, oh, the monkey bit this person and then this person spread it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like it's it's very easy to do it that way. That's not how the real world works. Right. I mean, it's, it's irresistible from a fictional standpoint because it invokes those myths. But but yeah, actually finding that individual there, we're going to discuss some cases of alleged patient zeros. But uh, for the most part, it's a rather difficult uh, exercise. Yeah, because the thing here is that infectious agents can percolate in the environment for years, sometimes even 
decades without being detected. And when they do enter the human population, it could be through more than just one person. Also, some people are more capable of spreading disease than others. So one uh, argument is basically, well, instead of thinking of it in terms of patient zeros, maybe we should be thinking of super spreaders. And there's also a terminology for people who are referred to as super shedders as well. Hmm. And these are the people who shed many more types of the virus into an environment. Okay. So, yeah, so we've got a lot to unpack here. I think we're going to see more of it when we look at the examples. Now, you might well ask yourself, well, how does one become the first carrier of a particular illness? Well, the answer here, of course, is that that they mutate. They leap from a non-human host to a human when they adapt and sustain. So for many uh, zoonotic infectious diseases, the first step involves the species jump. All right. Uh, we've seen this. Uh, in, you've seen this in a number of examples that have popped up in the news over the years. You know, bird flu, swine flu. Yep. The idea that these these are uh, strains of influenza that have thus far uh, been isolated to a, a non-human animal. But through close proximity, this thing is uh, able to jump to us and then sustain itself in this new host. Yeah, and uh, we're going to see in some of these examples that bats are actually a huge factor mm-hmm. in uh, zoonotic infections. Uh, the other thing that I was going to mention, too, is this reminds me of our episode on the guinea worm, uh, where it was oh, the yeah. other way around, and that the guinea worm jumped to dogs from humans. Yeah, it, it essentially, we thought we had it wiped out, and then yep. we found out it, it had jumped to dogs as a, as a new hiding place, thus complicating our efforts to eradicate it. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so anyway, they get into a human, they can, uh, they can spread through the human population. And to put that in perspective, about 60% of all existing human infectious diseases are zoonotic. So it's not a, it's not a case where, oh, this is, this, this is a strange, uh, situation where this, this illness jumped from one species to another. This seems to largely be how, how they work. Like this is, right. this is a common factor in, uh, in, in studying, preventing and fighting infectious disease. So why then, why is it important for science to be able to attribute a patient zero? Well, there are two main factors here. Of course, one is the, the chance to better contain the outbreak. If you can pinpoint who brought it? Then you can you can follow the chain. You can try and contain it. You can you you can do everything you can to prevent the further spread of the illness. Uh, and then secondly, it's the chance to determine where and when the outbreak started based on the patient's personal history. Uh, it gets one closer, one step closer to the, to the source. You right. Know? Yeah. Because essentially, you're 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 condensing the history of the illness to the history of the person, right? Mm-hmm. And that can conceivably be easier to 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 track down. Now, an example of uh, this in action would be uh, uh, when uh, medical professionals trace the 2014 West African outbreak of Ebola back to a two-year-old child who died on December 6, uh, 2013. By January 1st of 2014, the child's mother, three-year-old sister, and grandmother had died as well. So this uh, this was a town in Guyana, uh, which sits adjacent to the borders of uh, Liberia and Sierra Leone. Uh, so you, you, there's easy access for it to spread into different regions, uh, which explains how it managed to spread through three countries within a, a matter of months. Isolating the patient zero in this case allowed researchers to map the transmission of the virus and better understood stand how and where it was spreading. 
but as we'll explore, uh, this helpful concept can also spin out of control thanks to the complications of, of human prejudice right. and just the, the power of this mythic idea that that there's a single individual to blame yeah. for something as complex as uh, the the mutation and spread of an infectious disease. In fact, I believe in that uh, particular Ebola case, I believe that there were some factors of witchcraft being blamed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to see, you know, patient zero not only works in a medical situation and that like we need to apply it so that we can try to contain the outbreak, figure out what its origins are, but it also works from the human cultural perspective of trying to understand what's going on. Right. right. Why don't we take a quick break? And when we get back, we'll, we're going to take a look at some patient zeros of note throughout history. All right, we're back. So, yeah, we're going to talk about some patient zeros here. And this first one uh, I'm, I'm particularly fond of because the story actually comes up in the first season of uh, The Nick, which was a, right. is was is a fabulous Cinemax uh, TV series starring Clive Owen about uh, the, the the just the rapid ad- advances in the medical profession uh, in the early 20th century. And it's a really rough story for yeah. this particular individual. I'm sure most of you have been thinking about her as we've been talking about patient zero. Of course, we mean typhoid Mary. Yeah, the name itself has become synonymous with yeah. someone who unknowingly spreads a disease. Yeah. And so uh, Typhoid Mary was actually a woman named Mary Malone or Malin. Uh, she was an Irish immigrant and she was forcibly quarantined after officials determined that she was spreading disease to unsuspecting families that she worked for as a cook. Now, the idea here was basically that she worked in these homes and members of the homes, they would develop typhoid fever. They would get it from salmonella typhi. So they quarantined her on two occasions for a total of 26 years. And she subsequently even sued the New York Department of Health because she was basically imprisoned, uh, but she was unsuccessful. Is that what they cover in the Nick? Do they they talk about her quarantining? Uh, they ba- the, the quarantine's kind of set up at the end. It basically there's a character in the show who's uh, who inspects outbreaks and tries to okay. get to the bottom of it. And there's a strong uh, you know immigrant uh, um, aspect of the plot as well. But uh, you have a couple of the characters who are investigating this outbreak and trying to determine what's causing it. Yeah. So I mean, we can see he- here. Not only was she a woman and it made it gendered, but she was also Irish. And at Mm -hmm. the time, there was a lot of prejudice against Irish immigrants. So, of course, it worked very well for them to say, well, this is the person who this whole thing broke out with. It's it's her that's responsible for this. She's actually not technically what we would refer to as a patient zero, though. Yeah, I guess she might uh, qualify as a as a as a what a super uh, shedder, perhaps. Yeah, either a super spreader or a super shredder. (laughs) Uh, That sounds like some kind of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Well, there was Super super Shredder in uh, the second one. I believe it's that they're shredding the virus. And he did mutate. Oh, really? Uh, But her case, it's actually similar to um, uh, that movie 28 Weeks Later. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is it's somebody who can spread the disease, but they're also immune to it. So she didn't get sick herself, but she, she was supposedly spreading it to all these other people. Yeah, she was an asymptomatic carrier, so which means that she carried the disease, she transmitted it, but she exhibited no symptoms herself. And that, that's what made 
her inadvertently so so dangerous yeah because she didn't seem like a sick person but she was carrying this this uh this deadly infection and it made it very easy for them to basically lock her up for half of her life yeah i think she died in prison actually yeah uh it's uh it's interesting that we bring this up of course on uh, the week of saint patrick's day because i i think for a lot of modern listeners it's it's especially given you know the the, the importance of uh of of, of people of Irish descent yeah. in our country and, uh, and, you know, the, the celebration of St. Patrick's day and, and et cetera, it's easy to forget that, that, uh, that Irish immigrants had kind of a, a second class, uh, class, a second class citizen classification, mm-hmm. um, in, in these, in these times, not too long ago, not very long ago at all. Yeah. And of course, another, uh, Another case is with uh, Chinese Americans, and we have uh, an example of that that comes up. This was uh, from a similar similar time period. This was uh, back in 1900. Uh, public health officials discovered the corpse of a 41 year old Chinese man named Wing Chong Ging in the basement of the Globe Hotel. So this was in uh, San Francisco, and signs pointed to bubonic plague. And indeed, this was the start of the San Francisco plague of uh, that that that. Uh, there was an issue from 1900 to 1904. So if officials responded to this by ordering a complete quarantine of Chinatown. They ordered all white residents to evacuate and had mandatory house by house fumigation and vaccination for all of the residents. So it's another case in which, yes, on one level, there's a rational attempt here to contain the spread of an infectious disease. But there's also this element of race and social standing that's playing into it. You know, the, yeah. the, the idea, well, let's get let's get all the white people out and let's deal with the problem here, which are the Chinese people and just how ridiculous and and ultimately grotesque that notion is and and potentially ineffective in containing the 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 illness yeah you see how in these american examples and we're going to talk about hiv a lot later uh that they they're immigration scares essentially right Mm -hmm. and in the case of hiv it's a, a a scare of sexuality but I, I mean, I could very easily see, given our current situation with immigration here in the United States, that uh, it would be very easy to latch onto a narrative that somebody who is either Latino or Middle Eastern was a patient zero of some kind in the coming years, right? That would be a very similar uh, storyline to what we saw with Typhoid Mary and Wing Chung Ging, uh, basically like demonizing them so that the predominant narrative is, Oh, it's not me. I'm okay. I'll be fine as long as I stay away from those people. Right. I mean, well, you see, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion in the media, uh, recently about the idea that we see the exact same thing with, uh, with acts of violence and, and, and terrorism, mm-hmm. right? That the idea is that we end up focusing on individuals, uh, who are othered in some respect. So yeah. it's individuals from a, from a, a, a predominantly Muslim nation or, um, or a nation uh, that, that is, uh, that has some connection to these, uh, these, uh, these cases of violent extremism and then saying, well, this is where it's coming from. And then you're dismissing, um, other fonts of violence, other fonts of terrorism that occur domestically or in other, uh, nations that for various reasons are not, uh, receiving the same level of scrutiny. Right. But it happens in other nations too. It's mm-hmm. not just the United States. Right? Oh, certainly. This is a human wide, uh, phenomenon. So another example of a um, of a patient zero uh, here or an alleged patient zero was um, 
a, a Chinese doctor by the name of Dr. Liu Zhanlun. This is a, he's a 64-year-old. He was from uh, Guangdong province. This is uh, home to, to Guangzhou uh, for anyone who's trying to piece it together on a map. And he spent the night in a Hong Kong hotel. And uh, according to a report from CNN, he may have transferred um, his virus to at least 16 other guests staying on the same floor, that virus being SARS. Yeah. So the idea here, this definitely seems to be a case of what they call super spreading. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's thought that Lou acquired the disease from a hospital that he worked in. So a farmer in Guangdong first developed SARS after coming into contact with an animal. So we've talked about this already. This is zoonotic infectious disease that jumps from one species to another. Uh, so it's believed that SARS originated in bats, actually, and then spread to other animals like civet cats before infecting humans. Uh, and so when the genetic material from two or more other viruses infect a single human or really any animal, the host itself is referred to as a reassortment event, right? And so that that is what is assumed to have happened here. A lot of deadly diseases are linked to bats in this way, and we'll, we'll give you some more examples later, but uh, Ebola, hepatitis C, SARS, and perhaps MERS are all linked to bats. In the case of SARS, it's thought that it first spread to humans actually in 1994 by bats that were infecting horses in Brisbane, Australia. Then two people caught the virus from the horses, uh, and they think it was possibly from scratches that were exposed to infected horse blood. Uh, both of these people died horrible deaths. Uh, in other diseases, pigs have become infected by eating saliva-covered fruit that's dropped by bats. And then that subsequently infects the humans who eat the pigs. Uh, people can also be directly infected by drinking juice from date palms that have been contaminated by bats. It's interesting that you bring uh, bats up because, you know, when talking about typhoid Mary, Mm. we talked about how she was an asymptomatic carrier. And, of course, bats are asymptomatic carriers of rabies. Uh, They don't display the the rabies. uh, You know, they're not foaming at the mouth, but they can be carriers of it. And that's why, as everyone, I think, has heard, if you're bitten by a bat, you have to you have to act accordingly um, as if you've contracted rabies. Yeah, it, it, it's a different episode for another time, but mm-hmm. I would love for us to tackle bats and their immune systems and 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 just their uh, anatomy in general. We did a, a, a How Stuff Works video, man, it was like three years ago, where we went to Dragon Con and we interviewed a woman who was a specialist in bats mm-hmm. and uh, viral spreading. And it was just really interesting, huh. the idea basically being that they have these crazy fast metabolisms that just process things right out of them. Um, but on the other hand, they're also super susceptible to spreading these diseases. The other thing is that in the case of SARS, it's thought that a few wild civets were infected by bats, and then these civets were caught and taken to the market, and the virus jumped to humans. You know what I immediately think of here? Have you heard about this coffee that's made from civet poop? Oh, yeah. Uh, I have never had it, but I have been familiar with it. But so if nobody out there has heard of this, apparently I think in LA, it's kind of a thing you can buy like a cup of coffee that costs like what? It's like 80 bucks or something (laughs) crazy like that for one cup of coffee. It's supposed to be like the best coffee in the world. So the idea here, I think is that, uh, these civets eat coffee beans, they digest them. And then when it comes out the other end, they're able to somehow process it into coffee, not the civets people. Uh Uh, (laughs) It's not coffee itself. It's, directly out of their right exactly they process it and it and it 
supposedly has like this amazing fruity flavor. Hmm. But my first thought was, well, what if these civets are bitten by bats and you're drinking this $80 coffee? Do you then get SARS from your coffee? Yeah, I can imagine the cell being, look, this is going to be the best cup of coffee you ever have. You're, you're going to catch SARS probably, but <laughs> just, just, just give it a try. I mean, I doubt, so <laughs> I doubt that's the case. Otherwise people would probably be warned about this, uh, super expensive coffee, but still it just kind of made me think about that whole thing. Now, Dr. Uh, Lou uh, Jean Loon here, he's, again, he wouldn't have been patient zero per se, but it was still a critical factor in the spread of the disease because people from that hotel traveled and in less than four months, about 4,000 cases and 550 deaths from SARS could be traced back to his stay in Hong Kong. And th- this just makes me think back to our stories about traveling yeah. While sick, like when, when we have these tales of of patient zeros or alleged patient zeros, it's really easy to apply blame and say, oh, that was so irresponsible, that person to travel while they were sick right. and got all these other people sick. And yet this is something we all do. We all know that if you're sick, you should you should probably not travel. We know that if your kid's sick, you shouldn't send them to school. And yet. This happens all the time because we have, we make our plans, we spend money, we have our jobs to do, we have our lives to, uh, uh, you know, all planned out. And then illnesses come along and we're generally, we generally just try and plow through it if we possibly can. Exactly. I mean, like, so in both of our cases, you and I had both invested a lot of money Mm -hmm. in going on these vacations. It's not like you're just going to, you you can't just cancel right. those plans because that's a huge, you know, wash essentially. Now, yeah, you, you know, some of you out there are probably saying, well, you should have for the, for the betterment of mankind for everybody around you. I mean, I, for my part, like I would, I think try to wear one of those masks or something, mm-hmm. or honestly, after this last week, I, I would recommend <laughs> that everybody just wear one of those masks when you're on a plane from now on. Uh, it, it, those first really got popularized with SARS, right? I, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, of course, in, uh, in much of Asia, you still see them all the time in any kind of like a public gathering, yeah. a sporting event. Uh, so yeah. much so that they're like, they've, they've kind of like, uh, gotten some like aesthetic designs to them, right? Like yeah. Yeah. Like you do see logos and stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> emblazoned on them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably the smart way to go. I, I remember seeing people like that on the train or whatever and being like, oh, what a germaphobe. And now I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. Like yeah, they're, 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 they're germaphobe, but maybe ahead. they're germaphobe that's not sick, right? Yeah, now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, here's a couple other examples. So um, there was a six-year-old, and I don't think this is his real name, but he was referred to as Captain Boonmanuk. Uh, and he was a Thai boy who is the first confirmed casualty of avian influenza, or as we more commonly call it, bird flu. In 2004, he fell ill and his family reported that he had recently scooped up a chicken and that chicken was thought to have had the virus. So he's referred to as the patient zero for that. We've also got Edgar Hernandez, who is a five-year-old living in the Mexican town of La Gloria, when doctors identified him as the earliest documented case of swine flu in 2009. There you go with a recent example of somebody of Latino descent who's mm-hmm. blamed as a, a, a patient zero. Uh, but yeah, he was, he was called the earliest documented case of swine flu. They believe this came from, again, a reassortment event. The idea here was that the H1N1 strain was mixed inside pigs and that created new combinations that were more likely to infect people. Edgar Hernandez was the first one that they documented. 
Now for this next one, this is the individual that uh, we referenced already when we were talking about that e- Ebola case, that two-year-old. But you have some additional uh, information here. Yeah, so it looks like, and I'm I'm probably butchering this name, but the name is Emil Umuno. Uh, and like Robert had earlier said, it was a, a toddler living in the village of Milandu uh, when he developed Ebola. Uh, so Robert mentioned how quickly that spread and that, uh, basically it was because the town that this happened in, it was on the intersection of three different countries. So the, the virus spread really easily. This showed researchers just how transmissible, uh, Ebola can be and that specifically dealing with the sick is a high risk event for acquiring the infection. Now, in this case, they were saying like, look, uh, whether or not it's like a, a medicine man type figure or a shaman type figure, or even if it's just some kind of a medical doctor, that they're basically putting themselves into these high risk scenarios where mm-hmm. they can then subsequently become super spreaders. Uh, in addition to the detective work that the researchers did, they were also able to sequence the genomes of 99 Ebola viruses that were found in samples taken from 78 patients in Sierra Leone. Uh, this led them to believe that the virus was brought to West Africa in the past decade by an animal. Hmm. And so, like we said earlier, you know, this could this could have been bats. Uh, it, it's also thought Ebola can be uh, transmitted through monkeys and forest antelope as well. And we've also got a patient here who is a uh, 68-year-old South Korean man. Uh, he's thought to be the so-called patient zero for MERS or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Syndrome. Uh, he was an extensive traveler and he had been in Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Qatar before returning to South Korea. Now, MERS can take two to 14 days before symptoms begin to show. Mm. So it's thought that he may have transmitted it to 28 other people before he even arrived at a hospital. That's a, an important note to make, because even if you're not a, a purely a, a asymptomatic carrier of a disease, so many uh, different diseases and illnesses have an asymptomatic period. Uh, this is the case in a number of STDs as well, right. where one is carrying the STD, but you're not displaying uh, lesions or, you know, or swelling or rashes or wh- whatever the, the symptoms um, are of like a full, full blown uh, outbreak. Yeah. And, and so speaking of STDs, now we've, we've got the big term for patient zero. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the redemption of the man who was first designated patient zero or the first man supposedly to have HIV. All right, we're back. So we're talking here about Gaetan Dugas. Yeah, he is often attributed as being the patient zero for the HIV crisis. He was a Canadian flight attendant that was accused of introducing the virus to North America after he picked it up in either Haiti or Europe. And uh, Dugas was said to have infected hundreds of sexual partners before his death in 1984. Now, this is where the term patient zero was popularized. This shocked me. I thought that that term had been around for a very long time, at least mm-hmm. as far back as typhoid Mary, but it turns out it's, it's relatively recent within our lifetimes. Yeah. I mean, this was a, this was a major publication. They did a TV movie, uh, based on it that, mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah, that had, uh, Matthew Modine. Starring, yeah. Uh, yeah. Stuff to blow your mind favorite, Matthew Modine. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, he played the doctor, I believe, not Dugas. Different doctor, uh, from the one he plays in Stranger Things. It, well, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this, uh, the term was popularized in a book that was by a guy named Randy Schiltz. 
Uh, and this book is called And the Band Played On. It came out in 1987, and it documented the early years of the AIDS crisis. Schultz took the medical term patient O, that's the letter O, and turned it into zero in the book, describing Dugas as a person who continually had sex with partners without regard for their health, even after his physicians told him to stop. The book also says that Dugas would purposely show partners his sarcoma lesions after sex and say things like, I've got gay cancer, I'm going to die, and so are you. Uh, now, the reason why the letter O was misinterpreted as a zero, this turned into the provocative term patient zero, it actually meant O for outside of California. Huh. Uh, and the book, as we said, was made into a film. Now, one thing to keep in mind about uh, about Randy Schultz here, and I bring this up because not everyone's probably may not be that familiar with the book uh, and what his background is, especially when we're talking so much about othering here yeah, and, yeah. and discussing the the outsider as the source of an illness. Now, Schultz himself uh, was a homosexual man, uh, and he did he also eventually died of uh, of HIV, though he. He held off on finding out for sure if he had the illness until he had completed the book because he didn't want it to uh, to to color influence yeah, to, to color his prose. Um, again, he he was a you know acclaimed journalist uh, uh, in his life, like prior to writing the book. So uh, so I want everyone to have the like the proper impression of him uh, before we keep going. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so w- what we're going to discover here is that. Well, Schultz was wrong about uh, Dugas, but that doesn't mean that Schultz necessarily was a bad person. Right. Now, in terms of, of Dugas, we, we talk a bit about the redemption of of him as a, a carrier of the illness. Um, it He still allegedly boasted of 250 partners a year after he learned of his condition. Right. Um, he, he was highly vilified, uh, certainly following uh, this book coming out. Many Canadians apparently saw it as, as a shame on the nation. You know, the idea that here's this this guy who who played such a pivotal role in spreading this this uh, disease. And he was one of us. He was Canadian. And how are we supposed to feel about that? Right. Uh and, uh, and still, as sensational as all of this was at the time, and as vilified uh, as he was following the band played on, not everyone at the time was really into the sensation. When the book came out in the late 80s, pioneering AIDS researcher Professor Marcus Conant uh, of the University of California at San Francisco uh, told Time magazine, quote, if it hadn't been this man, it would have been some other. So, yeah. you know, as much... Even though one is, you know, instantly inclined to say, oh, this guy's patient zero. Look how reckless he was. Look, look, look how terrible he was. He should have, he should have cared more for his, for his fellow uh, humans. Uh, if, if it hadn't have been him, it would have been someone else. Like these, the, when we're, you're dealing with an infectious disease, it's, it's not a thing of, that is born out of human choice. It's not something as simple as, uh, as Pandora, um, opening that box. Yeah. And even then you could say, well, if Pandora didn't open it, someone would have opened it. You have a box sitting around. You can't just <laughs> leave a box with a lid on it and expect that nobody's ever going to try it out and see what's inside. Yeah. And as we're going to find out, you know, not only would it have been somebody else if it wasn't Dugas, but it was it was already out there. It was Mm -hmm. already in the world. It was already in the human populace. It just wasn't in the United States yet. And that's the thing here, too, right, is that like the narrative is, oh, this guy, this is the guy who brought it to the United States. But we didn't care about uh, the people who were infected with this in the Caribbean or in Africa. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, so the idea that uh, that, that that everyone in the U.S. was somehow you know situated in this just an, on another planet essentially, and yeah, completely removed from the threats of it via this station in the world. Um, like one example that comes to mind when discussing all this is uh, another case of destructive introduction of an infectious disease, and that's. Uh, uh, Spanish explorers bringing uh, smallpox, influenza, and measles into the New World. Sure. Now, this of course played a, a huge role in. Uh, I mean, you really can't um, overestimate the role this played. It gave them the the ability to exert military uh, dominance, uh, certainly with more ease. It uh, it it was a, a it was just a vital factor in uh, this 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 population coming in to the New World. And you, you can easily ask, well, what if what if this hadn't have happened? What if they hadn't introduced uh, uh, these illnesses? Well, it, it's hard to envision a, a situation where it wouldn't have, right? I mean, because people were traveling ac- across the world. The, the world was getting smaller. Uh, we were th- these were some of the, you know, the, the, the first contact between these uh, these these two human populations it was going to happen yeah now you can say well maybe it would there there are scenarios where you can imagine it happening uh uh in a way that wasn't so destructive but uh but 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 the, these these illnesses were going to spread into the new world there's there's really no way to imagine an, an an alternative scenario. I mean, unless there was some sort of a you know Star Trek Prime Directive scenario involved here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think uh, that the early colonists had any Prime Directives in mind. What What this makes me think of is just from from my you know local history growing up uh, in New England. Uh, so Amherst, Massachusetts is a, a town that my family is just generally mm-hmm. from around that area. And my mother lives there. It's named after Lord Jeffrey Amherst. What a lot of people don't know, even who live in the town, is that Lord Jeffrey Amherst uh, purposely gave smallpox blankets to the oh. Native American population in the area, you know, subsequently killing a lot of people. Uh, yet, you know, this is one of the the larger towns in New England. It's also uh, sort of a celebrated bastion of liberalism today, mm-hmm. which is ironic. And yet here's this figure who is essentially engaging in biological warfare uh-huh. via these uh, infected blankets. Now, in the case of Dugas, there was a recent article in Nature that found that HIV, in fact, entered the U.S. several years before he even did. They determined this through a genetic analysis of stored blood samples. And what they found was that the virus entered the U.S. from the Caribbean somewhere around 1971. And they think it was possibly through contaminated blood products like blood plasma. It wasn't even human to human interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was, of course, a big deal in uh, in a lot of the, the early HIV transmissions. Uh, if you're any science fiction fan, so they probably remember that Isaac Asimov uh, contracted HIV this way. He'd, uh, I did some, not know that. Yeah, really. He had some uh, heart surgery, I believe, okay. and uh, he ended up con- contracting HIV from the transfusion. But it was so it was so scandalous at the time. It was, I think, ten years after his death before that that fact was made public by his family, where they they said, "Yeah, this is this is what happened." Uh, same thing happened in my family. My grandfather oh, yeah? uh, contracted HIV through heart surgery. Uh, but this is interesting. I, I've never heard about this about Isaac Asimov. But yeah, same thing. My grandfather was a doctor uh, and he contracted HIV when he had heart surgery. Uh, and of course, because he was a doctor, he didn't want to lash out at the medical community or the hospital where he was treated at. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was just something that 
we dealt with. Yeah. Uh, now in, in, in the case of figuring out what went on with Dugas, what's really interesting here is they used similar techniques to those that are used to decipher the badly degraded ancient DNA from fossils. Huh. So what they did was they found that the viral DNA was so genetically diverse that the viruses must have been circulating in cities for years prior to 1978, which is how they picked up all these variations. So the researchers believe that HIV first jumped to the United States from Haiti somewhere around 1970 or 1971. The samples that they looked at all came from the same family tree of HIV, and these were all the same as the one from the Caribbean. So that suggests that the HIV uh, virus spread from Africa to the Caribbean and then to the United States. But then again, because of some specific markers, they think New York was uh, where it specifically went to from the Caribbean somehow through these blood plasma products. You know, it, it's interesting here because we, we've discussed the, you know, the idea that, uh, oh, the, these are these are things that emerge from less civilized places. They emerge in the wilds, right, in right. rural areas. But yet at the same time, large centers of population, including places like New York, uh, you know, certainly one of the more, the more famous, uh, metrop- metropolitan areas in the world, like a, a modern city of their, there ever was one. Like these are classic incubation, uh, oh, yeah. sites for illnesses and disease. When you look back at the history of infectious disease, uh, for, for, for human beings, like this is that we see this time and time again. People come together, they create these cities, and certainly cities are great for, for enterprise, for uh, for economics, for cultural ideas, but they are also places where diseases uh, pick up steam. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love New York. It, it's one of my favorite places in the world to be. But anytime I get on the subway and in New York, I'm just like, it's almost like I get this <laughs> like special vision where all I'm seeing is just like creepy crawly potential viruses or bacteria just on everything, you know. <laughs> and you just have to go with it, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, that's why New York works so well in like apocalyptic disease fiction like The Stand, right? Like, mm-hmm. you remember there's that scene in The Stand where, uh, the Lincoln Tunnel, I believe it is, is like all completely backed up because everybody just died in their cars. And one of the characters has to like crawl through the Lincoln Tunnel oh, yeah. in the pitch black dark, surrounded by all these diseased corpses. And it's, of course, New York makes sense for that setting. All right. So we've been, We've been dis- dancing around this, uh, but yeah, we really come back to this idea is that well, why do we, why do, why are we so drawn to this idea of patient zero? Why is this, this trope? Why is this mythic, um, description, uh, so irresistible? Yeah. Like even if we, we're not, even if we don't want to consciously invoke it, we end up thinking about it. And, uh, and this is, uh, this has been a topic of, uh, of some consideration by a number of authors out there. There's one piece in particular that came out in Ian Magazine recently. Um, and this is from, uh, Leela Me, and it, the title of the piece is The Seductive Lie of Patient Zero and the Outbreak Narrative. And I just wanted to read a quick quote from it because I thought she really summed, summed it up rather nicely. The allure of patient zero rests on the ways in which the figure allows us to assign responsibility and blame when an outbreak occurs. It makes visible the vectors of disease transmission and draws attention to the dangers of human contact, creating distance between the afflicted and the rest of us. When patient zero is defined as someone with distinguishing traits of behavior, sexuality, or race, then those of us 
with differing characteristics can reassure ourselves that we are not at risk. A patient zero lacks both the capacity for self-control and the moral conviction to avoid placing others in danger. The more he or she strays from established norms, the greater the opportunity for reprobation. Yeah, so basically what she's saying here is when we stray from the status quo, that's when we allow disease to happen. Right? Yeah. Uh, the idea being that patient zeros are culpable, that they're responsible for what they've done. Now, the Dugas legend of him going around and having sex with 250 people and then saying, ha, 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 I gave you AIDS mm-hmm. plays very well into that. But as we've seen with a lot of these other cases, that's not always accurate. Right. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> I mean, it, it comes comes back around uh, uh, too to this 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 uh, trend throughout human culture to confuse illness with some sort of a moral uh, disfigurement. To uh, I mean, or any kind of disfigurement, really. Like a physical disfigurement means your soul is twisted in some way, shape, right. or form, right? Yeah. Uh, and and even no matter how much we try and distance ourselves from that sort of illogical thinking, it has a way of creeping back into our to our judgment. Um. In, in, in the narrative here, this, this, this agent zero narrative, it gives us, it gives us someone to blame, often a scapegoat. Yeah. An other that makes us feel safer because we can always say, well, oh, I'm not Asian or I'm not poor. Or, I'm not homosexual. Uh, I'm not this, that or the other, whatever yeah. makes us feel a little safe. And, you know, I, I, I think we all find ourselves engaging in some level of this when dealing with illness, because just the other day I was, I was talking with my wife about, uh, about uh, our, you know, illness creeping into our own family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were saying, well, you know, we, we eat really healthily. Like how, how come this is happening to us? And of course that, that's simplistic thinking on our part because yes, you know, healthy, a healthy diet is important and that, you know, boosts your immune, uh, system, et cetera. But, to think of it as this this barrier, as this golden shield against infectious agents that do not work so simplistically, yeah. um, you know that 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 gets in the way of of proper um, protection and understanding of these illnesses. Yeah, you also have a four year old who's coming into contact with all these other four year olds oh, yeah. who are wiping, I imagine, their their noses or their hands on their mouths or oh, whatever, yeah. and touching each other and then coming home. Yeah, you want right? to talk about incubators for uh, illness? Yeah, any pre K, kindergarten, first grade scenario is going to be exactly <laughs> that. But you know, at the the heart of it, though, we we want to put a face with a threat, and then we want to reassure ourselves that that face is not our own. Uh, and I feel as we experience, uh, you know, we experience something like this when we even say, look at mug shots, or we we want to see the victims of crimes, we want to see what they looked like. We have to know the face of the uh, afflict, afflicted or affected individual so that we can evaluate our own standing in in relationship to them. Right. Yeah. And like with all culture, it's basically us trying to figure out how the world works by creating a story that Mm -hmm. we can understand. Right. Yeah. Uh, And but I think like if you sort of peel the 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 layers away from that story, you see necessary. It it isn't necessarily always the case with these, quote, patient zeros. In fact, the term itself is such a misnomer. Really, index case seems to be more responsible term. Yeah. So, you know, as we've just said over the last two weeks, Robert and I have been battling off illness. It's that time of year 
Also, I think a lot of stuff's going around. So maybe those of you out there that are listening can relate to this. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us and you want to let us know your thoughts on the patient zero narrative or just, you know, in general, uh, how disease is transmissible, you can always hit us up on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And uh, hey, if you want to, if, if uh, specifically the the discussion of AIDS and HIV uh, was of interest to you, and you want to learn more, uh, I, we do recommend checking out the International AIDS Society or IAS. You can find them at www.iasociety.org. And if you want to send us an email, just simply shoot us your missive at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.